All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are standing in the confessional corner. Last week, we heard the Lord's Prayer, as Luther has it in the small catechism. This week, we begin to look at it in the large catechism. So we are going to start by looking at the first 34 paragraphs in the large catechism as the introduction to the Lord's Prayer, the segue from the Apostles' Creed, but also covering the initial words as well. So we are starting in the Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions, the Reader's Edition, on page 408. We have now heard what we must do and believe, and what things the best and happiest life consist. Now follows the third part, how we ought to pray. For we are in a situation where no one can perfectly keep the Ten Commandments, even though he has begun to believe. The devil with all his power, together with the world and our own flesh, resist our efforts. Therefore, nothing is more necessary than that we should continually turn towards God's ear, call upon him, and pray to him. We must pray that he would give, preserve, and increase faith in us and the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We pray that he would remove everything that is in our way and that opposes us in these matters. So that we might know what and how to pray, our Lord Christ has himself taught us both the way and the words. Luke 11, 1-4, as we shall see. So in this segue between the creed and the prayer, we have the purpose for the prayer. The Ten Commandments tell us what we need to do. The Apostles' Creed tells us what we need to believe. But now we need the Lord's Prayer because we can't do either one perfectly. We can't do and follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. We can't believe perfectly in the Apostles' Creed. So we need the prayer to help us to see, as we will see over these next couple of months, how to get us to that point of faith and action. But this prayer, we ask that God give and preserve and increase the faith in us and also the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. We move on into paragraph 4. But before we explain the Lord's Prayer part by part, it is most necessary first to encourage and instruct people to prayer, as Christ and the apostles also have done. Matthew 6, 5-15. And the first thing to know is that it is our duty to pray because of God's commandment. For that's what we heard in the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. We are required to praise that holy name and call upon it in every need or to pray. To call upon God's name is nothing other than to pray, as in 1 Kings 18, 24. Prayer is just as strictly and seriously commanded as all other commandments, to have no other God, not to kill, not to steal, and so on. Let no one think that it makes no difference whether he prays or not. Common people think this, who grope in such delusion as, why should I pray? Who knows whether God heeds or will hear my prayer? If I do not pray, someone else will. And so they fall into the habit of never praying. They build up a false argument as though we taught that there is no duty or need for prayer because we reject false and hypocritical prayers, Matthew 5 or 6, 5. But it is certainly true that the prayers that have been offered up till now when men were babbling and bawling in the churches, Matthew 6, 7, were not prayers. 
Such outward matters of prayer, when they are properly done, may be a good exercise for young children, scholars, and simple persons. They may be called singing or reading, but not really praying. But praying, as the second commandment teaches, is to call upon God in every need. He requires this of us and has not left it to our choice. But it is our duty and obligation to pray, if we would be Christians, just as it is our obligation and duty to obey our parents and the government. For by calling upon God's name and praying, his name is honored and used well. This you must note above all things, so that you may silence and reject thoughts that would keep and deter us from prayer. It would be useless for a son to say to his father, What good does my obedience do you? I will go and do what I can. It makes no difference. But there stands the commandment, You shall and must obey. So here prayer is not left to my will to do it or leave it undone, but it shall and must be offered at the risk of God's wrath and displeasure. This is the point. Why do we have prayer? Because God has commanded it. Why has God commanded it? So that we do it. He wants that relationship with us. Adam and Eve were created to have that eternal relationship with God, to be able to walk and talk with him as they did in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But now, he still has that avenue open for us. We can talk about the commandment and the law all we want, but with that commandment, there's also the promise that God will hear us, that God has left that avenue open for us so that we may know for certain that our prayers are heard, as we'll get into in the Lord's Prayer. This point is to be understood and noted before everything else. Then by this point, we may silence and cast away the thoughts that would keep and deter us from praying, as though it does not matter if we do not pray, or as though prayer were commanded for those who are holier and in better favor with God than we are. Indeed, the human heart is by nature so hopeless that it always flees from God and imagines that he does not wish or desire our prayer because we are sinners and have earned nothing but wrath. Romans 4.15 Against such thoughts, I say, we should remember this commandment and turn to God so that we may not stir up his anger more by such disobedience. For by this commandment, God lets us plainly understand that he will not cast us away from him or chase us away, Romans 11.1. This is true even though we are sinners, but instead he draws us to himself, John 6.44, so that we might humble ourselves before him. 1 Peter 5, 6, Bewail this misery and plight of ours, and pray for grace and help. Psalm 69, 13. Therefore we read in the scriptures that he is also angry with those who were punished for their sins, because they did not return to him, and by their prayers turn away his wrath and seek his grace. Isaiah 55, 7. Here again, we have this command, yet promise. The command for prayer but the promise that the prayers may turn aside his wrath, that we may come and repent and receive his grace and mercy. This is the point of prayer, to have the proper relationship with our Heavenly Father. Therefore, he gives us the words to pray and begins them with our Father who art in heaven. We pick up in paragraph 12. Now, from the fact that prayer is so solemnly commanded, you are to conclude and think that no one should in any way despise his prayer. Instead, he should count on prayer. 
He should always turn to an illustration from the other commandments. A child should in no way despise his obedience to father and mother, but should always think, this work is a work of obedience. What I do, I do for no other reason than that I may walk in the obedience and commandment of God. On this obedience I can settle and stand firm, and I can value it as a great thing, not because of my worthiness, but because of the commandment. So here also we should think about the words we pray and the things we pray for as things demanded by God and done in obedience to him. We should think, on my account, this prayer would amount to nothing, but it shall, be, it shall succeed because God has commanded it. Therefore, everybody, no matter what he has to say in prayer, should always come before God in obedience to this commandment. This is the solemn nature of prayer. We have all kinds of flippant prayers that we can think of throughout our life, throughout the scriptures, of things that really are rather better not said, but they were said anyway. But no one should despise prayer because there is the commandment to pray. There is the commandment to properly use God's name. So therefore, we call upon him in every trouble. We pray, praise, and give thanks. Picking up in paragraph 14, we pray therefore and encourage everyone most diligently to take this counsel to heart and by no means to despise our prayer. For up to now it has been taught in the devil's name that no one should think about these things. People thought it was enough to have done the act of praying whether God would hear it or not. But that is staking prayer on a risk and murmuring it at a venture. Therefore it is a lost prayer. For we let thoughts like these lead us astray and stop us. I am not worthy or holy enough. If I were as godly and holy as St. Peter or St. Paul, then I would pray. But put such thoughts far away. For the same commandment that applied to St. Paul applies also to me. The second commandment is given as much on my account as on his account, so that Paul can boast about no better or holier commandment. You should say, My prayer is as precious, holy, and pleasing to God as that of St. Paul or of the most holy saints. This is the reason. I will gladly grant that Paul is personally more holy, but that's not because of the commandment. God does not consider prayer because of the person, but because of his word and obedience to it. For I rest my prayer on the same commandment on which all the saints rest their prayer. Furthermore, I pray for the same thing that they all pray for and always have prayed. Besides, I have just as great a need of what I pray for as those great saints. No, even a greater one than they. We think, okay, we're not holy enough to pray. We're not worthy enough to pray. We're not worthy enough. We're not holy enough to draw breath, but we still do it anyway. We deserve nothing but eternal and temporal punishments. We deserve death because of our sins. But God still gives us the grace to let us draw our breath, to let us live out our days, and to give us that opportunity to talk to him, to put our needs, put our desires in front of him and ask for him to grant those things. All of this, not because of me, not because I deserve these things, but because God has commanded me to pray to him. So Luther says, let this be the first and most important point that all our prayers must be based and rest upon obedience to God, regardless of who we are, whether we are sinners or saints, worthy or unworthy. 
We must know that God will not have our prayer treated as a joke, but he will be angry and punish all those who do not pray, just as surely as he punishes all other disobedience. Furthermore, he will not allow our prayers to be in vain or lost. For if he did not intend to answer your prayer, he would not ask you to pray and add such a severe commandment to it. Let me repeat that again. If he did not intend to answer your prayer, he would not ask you to pray and add such a severe commandment to it. Luther continues, In the second place, we should be more encouraged and moved to pray because God has also added a promise and declared that it shall surely be done for us as we pray. He says in Psalm 50, 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And Christ says in the Gospel of St. Matthew, Ask, and it will be given to you. For everyone who asks, receive. Chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Such promises certainly ought to encourage and kindle our hearts to pray with pleasure and delight. For he testifies with his own word that our prayer is heartily pleasing to him. Furthermore, it shall certainly be heard and granted, in order that we may not despise it or think lightly of it and pray based on chance. You can raise this point with him and say, Here I come, dear Father, and pray not because of my own purpose or because of my own worthiness, but I pray because of your commandment and promise, which cannot fail or deceive me. Whoever therefore does not believe this promise must note again that he outrages God like a person who thoroughly dishonors him and accuses him of falsehood. You don't believe in the promise, you are calling God a liar. And God is not a liar. Besides this, we should be moved and drawn to prayer. For in addition to this commandment and promise, God expects us and he himself arranges the words in form of prayer for us. He places them on our lips for how and what we should pray, Psalm 51.15, so that we may see how heartily he pities us in our distress, Psalm 4.1, and we may never doubt that such prayer is pleasing to him and shall certainly be answered. This, the Lord's Prayer, is a great advantage indeed over all other prayers that we might compose ourselves. For in our own prayers, the conscience would ever be in doubt and say, I have prayed, but who knows if it pleases him or whether I have hit upon the right proportions and form. Therefore, there is no nobler prayer to be found upon earth than the Lord's Prayer. We pray it daily, Matthew 6, 11, because it has this excellent testimony that God loves to hear it. We ought not to surrender this for all the riches of the world. There's a great divide in the Christian church about prayer, and especially about rote prayer, whether it is repetitive prayer, like the Lord's Prayer, or written prayers, like we have for each Sunday of the church year. Many people say, no, that doesn't count, because that's not from the heart. Well, the things from the heart cause us to doubt because we don't know if we got it right or we don't know if we're asking for the right thing because sometimes the prayers from our heart, God answers with a no. And we wonder what we did wrong. We asked wrongly. That is the point. That is why the Lord's Prayer is in every liturgy that the Lutheran Church has. You go through all of the services, the five divine services, morning prayer, evening prayer, matins, vespers, service of prayer and preaching, the responsive prayers. Everything has the Lord's Prayer in it. Why? 
because it is the noblest prayer that we can pray. And because we have the commandment. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so forth. That is the commandment. Pray this prayer. Not saying that other prayers are not good, but we definitely want this prayer to be done. All right, we pick up in paragraph 24. The Lord's Prayer has also been prescribed so that we should see and consider the distress that ought to drive and compel us to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. For whoever would pray must have something to present, state, and name which he desires. If he does not, it cannot be called a prayer. We have rightly rejected the prayers of monks and priests who howl and growl day and night like fiends, but none of them think of praying for a hair's breadth of anything. If we would assemble all the churches together with all churchmen, they would be bound to confess that they have never from the heart prayed for even a drop of wine. For none of them has ever intended to pray from obedience to God and faith in his promise. No one has thought about any need. But when they had done their best, they thought no further than this, to do a good work by which they might repay God. They were unwilling to take anything from him, but wished only to give him something. But where there is to be true prayer, there must be seriousness. People must feel their distress, and such distress presses them and compels them to call and cry out. Then prayer may be, will be made willingly, as it ought to be. People will need no teaching about how to prepare for it and to reach the proper devotion. But the distress that ought to concern us most, both for ourselves and everyone, you will find abundantly set forth in the Lord's Prayer. Therefore, this prayer serves as a reminder so that we might meditate upon it and lay it to heart and not fail to pray it. For we all have enough things that we lack. The great problem is that we do not feel or recognize this. Therefore, God also requires that you weep and ask for such needs and wants, not because he does not know about them, Matthew 6, 8, but so that you may kindle your heart to stronger and greater desires and make wide and open your cloak to receive much. Psalm 10, 17. Every one of us should form the daily habit from his youth of praying for all his needs. He should pray whenever he notices anything affecting his interest or that other people among whom he may live. He should pray for preachers, the government, neighbors, household servants, and always, as we have said, to hold up to God his commandment and promise, knowing that he will not have them disregarded. This I say because I would like to see these things brought home again to the people so that they might learn to pray truly and not go about coldly and indifferently. They, may daily more, they become daily more unfit for prayer because of indifference. That is just what the devil desires and for which he works with all his powers. He is well aware what damage and harm it does him when prayer is done properly. We need to know this. All our shelter and protection rest in prayer alone. For we are far too weak to deal with the devil and all his power and followers who set themselves against us. They might easily crush us under their feet. Therefore, we must consider and take up those weapons which the Christians must be armed in order to stand against the devil. 2 Corinthians 10.4 and Ephesians 6.11 For what do you imagine has done such great things up till now? What has stopped or quelled the counsels, purposes, murder, and riot of our enemies by which the devil thought he would crush us together with the gospel? It is the prayer of a few godly people standing in the middle like an iron wall for our side. 
Otherwise, they would have witnessed a far different tragedy. They would have seen how the devil would have destroyed all Germany in its own blood. But now our enemies may confidently ridicule prayer and make a mockery of it. However, we shall still be a match for the, both for them and the devil by prayer alone, if we only persevere diligently and do not become slack. For whenever a godly Christian prays, Dear Father, let your will be done, God speaks from on high and says, Yes, dear child, it shall be so, in spite of the devil and all the world. Let this be said as encouragement, so that people may learn, first of all, to value prayer as something great and precious, and to make a proper distinction between babbling and praying for something. For we by no means reject prayer. We reject the bare, useless howling and murmuring, as Christ himself also rejects and prohibits long, idle talk, Matthew 6-7. Now we shall most briefly and clearly explain the Lord's Prayer. Here there is included in seven successive articles or petitions every need that never ceases to apply to us. Each is so great that it ought to drive us to keep praying the Lord's Prayer all our lives. Again, as he finishes up his introduction to the Lord's Prayer, in these seven petitions is everything we need to pray for. All of our needs are right there. Therefore, it is the most perfect prayer. It is the noblest prayer that we could pray. Which is why, in many instances, the prayers of the church, as are written out by the Commission on Worship in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, do take that form of the Lord's Prayer and follow it down, expanding on them to cover the specific things that respond that respond to the particular season of the church year, the particular date, or even the things going on in the world, that we might truly be able to pray properly for the church, the world, and all the needs that we have. Because truly we do that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. And that is why the Lord's Prayer is so important for our lives why it is important that we pray it often. And it forms the basis of our prayers in everything else that we desire and ask God for. That we do it all based on that. Especially that His will be done. All right, that's it for this week. I thank you for being here, standing in the confessional corner with me. Next week we get into the first petition. I encourage you also to be here for digging deeper as we start to get into the book of Revelation this month. It's going to be a long journey because there is a lot to dig into. There is a lot to talk about in each of the verses of Revelation that we're going to take our time getting through it so it does not feel rushed by myself or by you but that we may truly consider the great comfort and joy that God gives to us in that book, just as he gives us the great comfort and joy in the Lord's Prayer. Till next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for being here and wishing God's richest blessings on you as you wrestle with the theologies around you. Amen.